what I call idea pathogens, these dreadful ideas that just like an actual physical pathogen can cause us harm, idea pathogens parasitize our minds, leading us to quietly go into the abyss of infinite lunacy. The most insidious, the worst of all idea pathogens is postmodernism because it fundamentally attacks the epistemology of truth. Today, sit down with Gad Saad a Lebanese-Canadian professor of marketing at Concordia University and author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. What the Sam Harris story demonstrates is that supremely intelligent and rational people are not inoculated from parasitic thinking. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Gad Saad, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. So Gad, I've picked up The Parasitic Mind, your book. It's been kind of on my reading list for quite some time, but what really caused me to pull the trigger was your commentary about this uh, Sam Harris trigonometry podcast. Um, and so, wow, I just, basically 48 hours later, I've uh, taken in a lot of really, really interesting material from you. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate your kind words. So I want to talk, you know, I think where we should start, we're going to, of course, we're going to talk about, you know, Sam Harris's commentary. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I, I find, you know, how you got to you know, the current role you're playing as this, you know, culture wars commentator. You know, you're, of course, a, a professor of uh, marketing, even. It's just kind yeah. of unexpected at Concordia in Montreal. Um, and, you know, so why don't you give me a little bit of sense of your origins, but all the way from the beginning, because you actually come from Lebanon and you kind of left at the almost the last minute it was possible for you to do so. Right. So I'll start with my personal, uh, you know, trajectory, and then I'll talk maybe a bit about my academic background to kind of give a sense to the people, you know, where I'm coming from. So I was born in Lebanon uh, in 1964. We were part of the last group of Lebanese Jews that had steadfastly refused to leave Lebanon. Uh, historically, in Lebanon, there was a, a small Jewish community. But during the 20th century, you know, as, uh, you know, things flare up in the Middle East, it became a bit more tenuous to be Jewish throughout the Middle East. And so most of my extended family had already left Lebanon by the time the Lebanese Civil War broke out in 1975. At the time, I was 11. So I had 
you know, I was born and grew up in Lebanon. Arabic is my mother tongue. We're very much Lebanese, but it became terribly dangerous to be Jewish in Lebanon. So we saw some things that people shouldn't see in a hundred lifetimes. You wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And luckily, uh, after, you know, the first year of the civil war, we were able to uh, leave and come to Montreal. And so it is in that context that I decided to weigh in on the reason why I mentioned uh, my personal history uh, in chapter one of the parasitic mind is because I want for people to understand that, you know, a culture that is organized along identity politics lines is exactly what happens in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Rwanda, right? Where your tribal allegiance, in the case of Lebanon, it's in part, depending on which religion you belong to, it doesn't lead to good places. So that's why I, I thought it was really important to discuss my personal history in writing that book. Now, in terms of my academic background, uh, you know, I've had a long trajectory. I started off uh, in a very technical field. I was a mathematics and computer science student. Then later I did an MBA with a thesis in operations research, which is a, again, an applied mathematics field. And then I went, so this was at McGill University. Then I went to, uh, to, to Cornell, where I uh, trained uh, in psychology of decision-making. And during my training, I was exposed to evolutionary psychology, which at the time was a fledgling field whereby you, you know people were applying evolutionary biological principles to understand human behavior. And so that's when I had my epiphany so that when later I decided that I would focus on studying consumer behavior and consumer decision-making, I married the two. How do you apply evolutionary thinking to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular? And that's why I'm housed in the business school because a lot of what I study is linked to consumer behavior or economic behavior. But isn't it also kind of how to manipulate people, actually? <laughs> uh, well, that's a rather you know pessimistic view of marketing. Marketing can be used for very laudable causes, and it can be used for nefarious causes, right? Everything in life. Actually, one of the next books that I'm thinking of writing is uh, you know, tentatively titled Life is Marketing and Marketing is Life because everything that we do is marketing, right? When we go on the mating market, we are marketing ourselves. We become the product. When we are in the labor market, we are marketing ourselves. When we network with other friends, we are putting our best foot forward. We're marketing ourselves. Animal market themselves in all sorts of ways. The peacock, when he's showing off his tail, he is engaging in advertising. So, so marketing is everywhere. It's ubiquitous in the natural world. And, and that's why, by the way, I, if I may say, I, I love what I do because I'm really drawing bridges between the natural sciences, the social sciences, the business school. Uh, so yes, you're right. Marketing can be used to, uh, to cause harm and to manipulate and to propagandize, but it can also use to uh, you know, promote good ideas, which I hope that I'm doing. Well, uh, you certainly are from what I've been reading, but you know, uh, the reason I mention this is because I, I can't help but think that one of the reasons why we have a lot of this parasitized thinking as you describe it, and I'm going to get you to explain to me in a, in a moment what that actually means, is because of incredibly effective marketing of really bad ideas. So I, I'm not surprised that you would actually be in a marketing school, come to think of it, right? And because you're thinking of things, you know, also through this, this, this type of lens. But, um, but 
it, it went, it's kind of a case in point in some ways when you have, you know, mass media, when you have, you know, these very powerful tools of social media and mass media and control focusing on really bad ideas. Yeah, beautifully said. That's exactly right. So Richard Dawkins in 1976 introduced the concept of a meme in his phenomenal book, The Selfish Gene, whereby he argued that not only do genes propagate, of course they do, so we're a biological creature, but also since we are a cultural animal, memes propagate. What are memes? They're packets of information that spread from one one mind to another. A jingle could be a meme. A, a, a marketing ad could be a meme. Uh, uh, a, a library is a collection of memes stored in books, right? So, but my parasitic framework, if I can, you know, jump to to my book, uh, is somewhat different. Yes, of course. The, the, the concept of a meme matters to me, but memes could be positively valenced, neutral, or negatively negatively valenced, right? Memes could be, in other words, they could it could be just something as innocuous as a jingle. I start singing it and then it spreads to your brain. Whereas the parasitological model that I use is only negative. And there what I did is I I delved into the neuroparasitological literature in the animal kingdom. And so let me explain what that is. Parasites can, can wreak havoc to, to all sorts of animals in different areas, right? So a tapeworm enters your intestinal tract. Neuroparasites are the parasites that seek to go to, an, to a host's brain, altering its neuronal circuitry, causing it to behave in maladaptive ways for the host, but beneficial ways to the parasite. And so I had my aha moment because I wanted to argue in the book that what I call idea pathogens, these dreadful ideas that just like an actual physical pathogen can cause us harm, idea pathogens parasitize our minds, leading us to quietly go into the abyss of infinite lunacy. And so that's why I, I, I really like to use the parasitological framework in explaining how these ideas can become so sticky. Well, you know, so I want to jump in. This I think this is the time to talk about your Sam Harris commentary. Um, but, sure. you know, we, uh, this applies, you know, what you're just describing, you know, applies to so many areas. And this is one of the reasons why I uh, found your book so compelling. But so, I mean... In a nutshell, right, Sam Harris, for those that you aren't of, of you that might not be aware, I'm just speaking to the audience briefly. Sam Harris is a remarkably rational individual. He's known this way. He's, he has, you know, he's, he's talked very eruditely on numerous topics, including, for example, wokeism. I think in that trigonometry episode, he calls it a woke apocalypse, actually. So he's, he, he sees it as a big threat to society. And at the same time, on this one area, notably uh, former President Trump, he seems to have some pretty extreme views, right? And this is, this is where your commentary comes in. Right. Uh, well, thanks for that uh, nice setup. Uh, look, what the Sam Harris uh, story demonstrates, and I'll, I'll get into the details of it, is that supremely intelligent and rational people are not inoculated from parasitic thinking. As a matter of fact, as I explain in the book, all of the idea pathogens that have parasitized the West originally stem from the university ecosystem. It takes professors to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. So the fact that the fact that you are educated doesn't mean that you've 
properly administered the mind vaccine against all of these idea pathogens. So now let's let's drill down on Sam Harris. And by the way, not that I need to preface this with what I'm about to say. My commentary is not meant as a personal attack on Sam's. Sam and I used to be friends. I've been on his show. We've been to dinner together. But he encapsulates, he instantiates an exemplar of this kind of parasitic thinking. So what is it? In chapter two of The Parasitic Mind, I talk about the distinction between thinking and feeling. And in it, I basically say that it's it's a false dichotomy. It's not that humans are thinking animals or feeling animals. We're both. We've evolved to trigger both systems. The challenge is to know when to trigger which system. So for example, if I'm taking a shortcut in the dark alley and I see four young men loitering, I will have an emotional response, which is perfectly adaptive. My heart rate will go up, my blood pressure will go up, I might start perspiring, I, I start maybe hyperventilating. All of those emotional mechanisms are perfectly adaptive in that context. On the other hand, if I were trying to do well on a calculus exam, triggering my emotional system is not going to help me much. I need to trigger my cognitive system. So now let's link it to Sam Harris et al, all the other hysterical intelligentsia folks. When it came to Donald Trump, what should have been triggered is your cognitive system. What are the policies of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama that you either agree or disagree with? When we're choosing a president or a prime minister, we should be triggering our cognitive system. On the other hand, when you look at all of the reasons that people use to justify why noble prophet Barack Obama is so beautiful and why Donald Trump is such an existential threat, it's only based on emotional responses, right? It's, he disgusts me, he's grotesque, he's cantankerous, he speaks like an eighth, eighth grader from uh, Queens. So all of the things that I am reviling in Donald Trump have nothing to do with his views on monetary policy or immigration policy. They only have to do with the fact that he serves, I'm speaking now as Sam Harris and the Ivory Tower folks, he is an aesthetic injury to me. He is he is a rejection of what makes me part of the anointed Malibu class. If such a grotesque gauche monster could ascend to the highest echelons of power, then how can I take my ivory tower degree seriously, right? And I, I want to draw here, I'm going to use a prop, Jan. Assume for a second that this, this memory stick is the cork of a wine bottle, and because I'm you're gonna see in a second why it's relevant. There's an Arabic expression, which I'll mention in Arabic. It says, biskaru bilzbibe, to get drunk by, by the cork of the wine bottle, okay? So what does that mean? Look, now I'm getting drunk at how mellifluous the voice of Bar Barack Obama is. He is so lanky and he's got such a radiant smile, right? Well, I haven't said that I agree with his substantive policies, but I've simply used peripheral cosmetic cues to say why I love him so much. Now, let me whiff the cork of, of Donald Trump. He's disgusting. He has a disgusting odor. He's a, he's a grotesque monster. So again, what's happening is I am of such weak cognitive constituency that I don't need to bother about justifying cognitively why I hate Donald Trump. I just do because he's disgusting. So the first problem with the parasitic thinking of Sam Harris, thinking in quotes, 
is that he is succumbing to the triggering of the wrong system, the emotional system rather than the cognitive system. The second excruciatingly important thing that he is violating is a distinction that I talk about in the book between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. Okay, Deontological ethics are absolute statements of truth. So for example, if I say to you, Jan, it is never okay to lie, that would be a deontological statement. If I were to say it's okay to lie when your spouse asks you, do I look fat in those jeans? In this case, I put on my consequentialist hat. I say that I'd like to remain married. I say that I don't want to hurt the feelings of my spouse. And therefore I say, no, beautiful. You've never looked as beautiful and lovely as you do today. Now, most of us, as we navigate through life, will put on our consequentialist hats for many different things. But when it comes to non-viable fundamental principles on which Western society is built, those should be deontological. Meaning, when it comes to, for example, presumption of innocence, that cannot be a consequentialist bet, bent. You never violate presumption of innocence. And yet Sam Harris and all his friends, when it came to Brett Kavanaugh, for example, said, well, it doesn't matter if we don't really have proof that he's guilty or not of, you know, being a gang rapist going up and down the eastern seaboard. You know, there is enough there to say, since this is just an interview, that we can presume that he is guilty. No, you don't. When Sam Harris said, well, uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm applauding the fact that Jack Dorsey finally removed the, you know, orange Himmler from Twitter because yes, freedom of speech is important, but not for an ogre like Donald Trump. You're violating a deontological principle. When he said on the trigonometry podcast, which he shouldn't have said out loud, but luckily for us, he did. He said, Sure, the media should be honest and fully reporting all stories. But when it comes to reporting Hunter Biden's laptop story, it was perfectly okay for them to suppress that because otherwise Donald Trump could have won and that wouldn't have been good. So in each of those instances, you're taking a deontological principle and you're violating it for consequentialist goals. That's morally grotesque. Let me give you two examples of deontological principles that are truly vivid. Number one, I'm Jewish. I escaped execution in Lebanon, and yet I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew their most grotesque, offensive statements. There is nothing more offensive than someone denying the most historically documented event where you had industrial scaled genocide of an entire people. Nothing could be more offensive. And yet as a free speech absolutist, I apply my deontological hat and say they have a right to speak. Second example, when the Mossad after the formation of Israel in 1948 were going out hunting Nazis, they located Adolf Eichmann, one of the worst of all Nazis, in Argentina. They sent a team in 1961, if I'm not mistaken, to Argentina, and now they were faced with the dilemma. Do we put a bullet in his head in the, in the darkness of the night without anybody noticing, and then we return to Israel? Or do we abide by our deontological ethics? They didn't use those fancy words, but that's what they were doing, whereby at great personal cost to the Mossad agents and at great diplomatic cost to Israel, should we you know, smuggle him out of Argentina 
to give him his due date in court. Well, what did they do? They did the latter. They brought him back to Israel. They tried him and then they executed him. Well, if we can grant the courtesy of deontological principles to Adolf Eichmann, then Sam Harris might want to wish to revisit whether Donald Trump should be afforded the same courtesy. I'm just going to comment because I pulled like the, uh, a lot of people focused on those, just those comments that Sam made. You know, he, he says, I mean, shockingly that, you know, I think it's Hunter could have had corpses of children in the basement. I mean, I, it, it was really wild stuff, right? Um, and then later, but later in the in the podcast, he kind of talks about how I'm paraphrasing here, but I wrote all bad things are a matter of people's minds being out of control. And he says that so much of the evidence of daily conflict and misery is born of people being captured by their own thoughts of an inability to be skeptical of their own opinions. I was like, I was watching this and I'm like, my goodness, you are so right about this. But what just happened 10 minutes ago? Right. Parasitic thinking. I mean, and incidentally, uh, on, on a personal level, I, I'd like to discuss something that I was uh, you know, tortured by, which is as I was trying to decide whether to weigh in on Sam Harris or not, I was stuck between two principles of codes of conduct. On the one hand, my personal code of conduct, in part just because of the unique combination of genes that constitutes my personhood, but also maybe the Middle Eastern culture of hospitality and friendship and loyalty. So I, I have a code of conduct whereby I try, if possible, to not go after people whom I know. And I don't mean after personally, but even their ideas, because out of loyalty, out of you know friendship, right? And so for about four or five years, as Sam was becoming utterly hysterical and unhinged about Donald Trump, I laid low and quiet, but that was being pitted against my deontological love for truth. Should I be loyal to someone I know, or should that be superseded by defending the truth at all costs? And I'm happy to report that truth won. So a lot of people thought that I had personal animus against Sam Harris. Nothing could be further from the truth. But if you're walking around positioning yourself as this great meditator, this great dispassionate pursuer of, you know, ration and reason, and then you become the exemplar of the most hysterical and unhinged, I'm going to call your hypocrisy, unfortunately. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Herbert Marcuse's principle of repressive tolerance. Yes. Yeah, because it almost, it almost seems like, when I, as I was, again, I was watching this, it's almost like well, there is this intolerable that you can never tolerate, and that allows, and that gives you the, you know, quasi-ethical exemption to basically put away, as you call it, your deontological thinking, right? And, and by the way, that's beautifully said, Jan, because that's what every dictator has used, right? So, of course, now I'm speaking as Hitler, of course. I love all people and I want everybody to live with full dignity, but not the Jews. Come on, they're parasites. Our societies are the way they are because of the vermins. And therefore, if we eradicate them, it's okay in this case to violate the deontological principle, right? So capitulating to that type of thinking where you decide that in this one case, it's okay to violate deontological principles is what every single dictator and miscreant has used throughout all of human history. So that's why it's so extraordinarily baffling that 
whether it be Sam Harris or, believe me, all of academia is full with nothing but Sam Harris's, right? They're all hysterical about Donald. I mean, it, the reason why I began, by the way, you may or may not know this series that I have on my show, uh, Jan. I do. The, I know what you're going to say. Yes. <laughs> what? Go ahead. Let me see if you're going to guess it. What is it? Well, the 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 hiding under the table series, of exactly. course. Right? Yeah. Exactly, right? So part of being a good satirist is exactly to mock things in, in very, very poignant ways, right? So I started hiding under the desk because it is literally what people were doing, right? I mean, when Donald Trump uh, was inaugurated, I would go to my personal Facebook page where I am friends with many academics, and they would be posting things like, now, you know, I'm a woman of color. Will I still be able to go to my uh, courses to, to teach my classes? Well, what did you think was going to happen when Donald Trump was inaugurated? He's going to set up roadblocks where he veers off women of color centers. Like, what kind of stupidity is that as a grown adult to be hysterical in this way? So this speaks to the point of the power of satire, which is something that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind. A, a lot of my super highfalutin academic colleagues, they say, well, you know, you're, you're such a, you know, austere professor guy, but why do you do all this comedy stuff? Well, because dictators are the most afraid of satirists, right? When dictators come to power, the first group of people they get rid of are the intellectuals who also have a very sharp tongue. They're not worried about the guys with the big muscles. We can easily get rid of those. But the guy who could mock me to death, that's the one that I want to get rid of. So I use satire and mockery, not because you know I'm a buffoon who likes to, to, to act like a joker, but because it is a terribly powerful and persuasive way to get your message across. What Sam, and I think I feel like we owe him a debt of gratitude for this kind of revealed, is this kind of thinking that might, as you described, might be kind of prevalent among you know, certain groups of people and kind of helps us understand uh, uh, you know, why, why, why this craziness to some extent, or even that, that this is literally the type of contradiction which can exist. But the flip side of it is when you have someone as brilliant as Sam, you know, taking a position like this, you realize like this is, this is deeply disturbing. He can't see the contradiction and how many people are like that. So that's part one. The second part goes back to something I mentioned earlier, which is I said, you know, you know, marketing is manipulation. You know, I am absolutely certain, having basically watched the way our media, uh, our what I call legacy media or mainstream media, others call them, um, you know, since about 2015, the way they portrayed uh, candidate Trump at the time, I'm sure there were a lot of people who didn't have this mind virus prior to being kind of blasted, you know, for lack of a better term, with this, with all this stuff for you know a year and then onwards. Did people actually get programmed through, you know, propaganda slash marketing slash slash people that had this mind virus in the first place themselves? You right. Well, I look. I, I think that it is easy to infect people with bad ideas, in part because those bad ideas can be alluring. And so, one of the things that we can talk about is why do some of these bad ideas become so infectious? And so that, that is something that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind. But the second thing is, which even makes it a, a more serious problem, is that most people are cognitive misers. A cognitive miser is someone who doesn't put in, expend the necessary cognitive effort 
to come to a decision, right? So for example, if I hear that Barack Obama or George Bush said that Islam is a religion of peace, case closed, I'm done, it's good enough for me, the president has said it, therefore it's good. So I didn't go out and expend the necessary effort to test the veracity of that statement, right? I didn't build, as we may eventually talk about what I talk about in chapter seven, I didn't build the nomological network to demonstrate whether Islam is truly peaceful or not. So you first take very infectious parasitic ideas that are easy for people to fall prey to, and then you combine that with the fact that people don't have the cognitive discipline to expend the necessary mental effort to, you know, to study a position, and you have the perfect storm. You mentioned Salman Rushdie in the book, and uh, you know he was recently attacked and frankly almost killed due to a 30-year-old fatwa, you know, on his life. And this happened actually in the United States. All these years, there are people essentially hunting for the man. You know, it's unbelievable. Not only it's unbelievable that in the 20th century, since I think the fatwa was issued in 1989, so not only that in the 20th century, you can have mullahs in Iran decide that someone living in another country should have a death fatwa on them. It, it really, it, it behooves one to think that such a reality can still exist, right? Blasphemy is still alive and well in the 20th and 21st century. But I think what gets me as angry as the fact that someone could issue such a fatwa is the apathy of most people in responding to Salman Rushdie's uh, plight. Uh, I think Christopher Hitchens many years ago had pointed that out, right? That how tepid most people were. Now, I I'm going to push the, 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 the issue longitudinally to now when he was, when there was the attempted murder on his life, I didn't see tons of people or certainly within my university ecosystem, taking strong positions in defense of Salman Rushdie. Now, in part, that could be apathy, but in, in part, of course, it's cowardice because most professors are too busy within the narrow lanes of their hyper-specializations. Therefore, they never deviate outside the narrow lane. But what kind of cowardice, what kind of castrated personhood must you have that something as egregious as someone being killed or attempted killed, murdered in New York state because he dared express his fundamental right to, to free speech, if that doesn't draw your ire, then you're, you're lobotomized. And so I'm equally upset at the fact that such a fatwa could be issued and at the West's apathy in responding with incredible anger and ire at such a reality. You know, one of the things you do talk about, the nominative networks uh, that, that, that you're describing, you actually, you know, use Islam as an example in the book and look through sort of a, a whole series of evidence and so forth around, around the, the faith. Why don't we actually just go to the concept? So a nomological network of cumulative evidence, simply put, is the following. Suppose I want, I wish to convince you, Jan, of a particular position. So, I, so one of the examples that I use is, say, uh, and that this framework could be applied to deciding whether Islam is peaceful or not. But I'll use it in a, you know, a, a, a more uh, uh, academic uh, setting. I want to demonstrate to you that toy preferences have sex specificity. Boys prefer certain toys and girls prefer certain toys. And that those preferences are not due to social construction. It's not because mama and daddy are evil 
members of the patriarchy that they are imposing these gender norms on you, but rather there are certain biological and evolutionary reasons why such sex-specific toy preferences would exist. How would I go about convincing you of that? Well, I'm going to build a network of evidence called nomological network of cumulative evidence, whereby I'm going to get you data from across cultures, across time periods, across species, across methodologies, all of which are going to triangulate regarding the veracity of my position. And so let me give you specifics. I won't build the whole network, but I'll give you a few distinct lines of evidence. So I can get you data from developmental psychology that shows that children who by definition are too young to be socialized, in other words, they couldn't yet be socialized to prefer those toy preferences by definition. And I could show you that those children already exhibit those sex specific toy preferences. In other words, I am ruling out the social constructivist argument. So that's one line of evidence. I can get you data from across species. I can get you vervet monkeys. I can get you rhesus monkeys. I could get you our closest animal cousins, chimps, showing you that they exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. So unless you want to argue that vervet monkeys have parents who are a member of the evil patriarchy, it's going to become difficult for you to hold to that position. I can get you data from ancient Greece and ancient Rome showing you that on the mausoleums, the funerary mausoleums where children are depicted playing, this is 2,500 years ago, little boys are shown playing with the same types of toys that we see today, and little girls are shown with playing with dolls, dolls and balls for boys and, and hammers and so on. Okay, so I'll do one more, but you get the general idea. I can get you data from pediatric endocrinology, uh, whereby little girls who suffer from uh, ad uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. It's a endocrinological disorder that masculinizes the behavior of little girls. Little girls who suffer from that endocrinological disorder have a toy reversal of what they like. They Their toy preferences become like those of boys. So look what I've done. I've gotten you data. I, by the way, I can also get you data from completely different cultures. Sub-Saharan nomadic cultures, they have the same toy preferences. So basically what I've done is I've put the epistemological noose, metaphorically speaking, around your neck. Why? because I've gotten you data from so many across time, across space, across cultures, across animals, all of which demonstrate the veracity of my position. So I don't have to be hysterical. I don't have to emote louder than you. I simply have to have the cognitive acuity and discipline to build that network with confidence. And then I watch you cower in silence as I win my argument. Now, the beauty of this methodology is that it allows me to go into places where I know a priori the crowd is going to be very hostile, and yet I walk with the full self-assuredness and swagger of someone who's already built that nomological network. So good luck to you if you wish to debate me on such an issue. On the other hand, though, what that allows me to do is to have epistemic humility. What does that mean? I know what I know, and I, do, I know what I don't know. So if you were to ask me on, hey, Gad, Canada was one of the first countries to legalize uh, marijuana. What have been the societal, economic, political repercussions of that? What I would say is, frankly, I haven't built the requisite nomological network to offer you the proper intelligent answer. Therefore, I withhold 
an opinion until I've done so. So it's really the way that people should be adjudicating all of these important societal issues. But again, the difficulty in administering my mind vaccine is it takes effort, right? If people are going to go, la, 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say, then all of the nomological networks in the world is not going to convince you. So the only way that my mechanism works is if my interlocutor is sufficiently intellectually honest to at least hear my nomological network. And if so, I have a good chance of swaying your opinion. So, you know, when I was reading about the nomological networks, which, by the way, it's an, it's an amazing... Uh... You know, it's, it's something beyond a meta-analysis, frankly, from what I can see. Um, you know, it made me think of public health, actually, because essentially over the last couple of years, um, and this is, you know, through conversations with people who I consider to be some of the world experts on this issue, we, we, we've, killed, we've killed public health. And the reason we've killed public health is because we stopped looking at the body of evidence, of the body of information, uh, and the different consequences that come as a result of enacting certain policies. And we basically fixated on one, in this case, on one thing, COVID, right? And everything has to be delineated by COVID. And whatever the consequences of our policy and trying to eradicate COVID, um, you know, be damned, those things be damned. So, I mean, effectively, that's what happened. And in fact, there's even, you know, a recent article actually um, out of the UK that where we have, you know, pe people essentially admitting that that's actually what happened in terms of the policy development, which is, I didn't expect anyone to admit that, but but that's what's happening. I mean, I'm glad, I guess, you linked it to, to, to a contemporary issue because uh, the COVID uh, public policy manifestations are the exact opposite of building a nomological network, right? So if one is the is the most charitable, you would say, well, people were just kind of going in an ad hoc seat of the pant kind of thing, right? I mean, what is it that could explain why it's six feet rather than eight feet distance? Show me that data, you don't know. Wh why is it that when I would go to a dollar store, we call them dollar stores in, in, in Quebec, uh, those are sort of the, the, the stores where you typically have items that are you know less than a dollar. Maybe now with inflation, they're less than $2. Uh, but you know this aisle, you weren't allowed to go to because it was a non-essential, but this aisle you were allowed to. What is the epidemiological virologist fact that justifies such a policy? So in a, if I were to, to, to be non-charitable, I would, I mean, to be charitable, I would say a lot of these errors in, in public policy were due to the facts that there's a fog of war. People were kind of just trying to respond, you know, in any way they could. And of course, that would create all sorts of inconsistencies in public policy. But I think my non-charitable hat suggests that in many cases, the policies that were enacted were willfully diabolical. So for example, as you may remember, Jan, when uh, I don't know how many, there were 100, 500 uh, you know, public policy officials with PhD and MD after their names wrote a letter sa saying that from a public health perspective, holding a gathering of 50,000 people because it's BLM, the pros and cons of the health, uh, you know, downstream effects are such that we should hold it. Going to grandma as she's dying, 
with pancreatic cancer in stage four, that cannot be allowed because, you know, virology. But having 50,000 people march that for because of the George Floyd BLM thing, that is justified from a public policy perspective. So in the if I put on my charitable hat, it's the fog of war that caused people to to, you know, enact all sorts of idiotic policies. If I'm going to put my non-charitable hat, it's an, a manifestation of how politics could even parasitize something as noble as public policy edicts. Well, and so it was 1,200 people. And the reason I remember that is, is because I actually looked that up. Now, this, this letter that you're describing, it's titled um, Open Letter Advocating for an Anti-Racist Public Health Response to Demonstrations Against Systemic Injustice Occurring During the COVID-19 Pandemic. That's the title of the letter. I mean, I just, I thought, I, I felt I had to read it to you because I wanted to get your response, but, but you've already, you've, you've already got me started here. Now that, when that happened, there's so many people that, you know, loosely describe themselves as disaffected liberals, right? A lot of people got shook by this. Your thought? Well, I'm, I'm glad that those people are waking up because at the very least, what they're demonstrating is that they have the humility, the intellectual humility to revise their opinions in light of incoming evidence, right? Uh, oftentimes when people ask me, you know, uh, it, it's hard to pin you in terms of what your political orientation is. The reason that's the case is because, not because I try to be coy and, you know, be mysterious in what my positions are. It's because I'm an ideas man. On some issues, you would think I'm very conservative. On other things, you would think that I'm the most liberal guy in the world. Let me give you examples of each. When it comes to immigration policy, you would think that I'm conservative because I do believe that uh, countries, sovereign nations should have borders. And no, it is not the intrinsic right of every human being to go wherever they wish. Otherwise, what's the point of having a country? Uh, this may or may not surprise you when it comes to the death penalty. I tend to lean much more conservative. If we find your DNA in the bodies, the body cavities of five children, then you forego your right to live. And, and the argument that, well, what if he's innocent? Well, we could set the bar anywhere that makes you feel comfortable. You have to have had your DNA in five children before we execute you. I see no moral problem with executing you if, if, you, if you engage in such egregious acts. On the other hand, when it comes to trans issues and you know LGBTQ, I couldn't give a damn what you do. I don't care how you identify yourself. You would think I'm the most socially liberal person in the world. So I think to, 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 the, to the point that you were asking of those people revising their opinions, uh, Take each issue on its own merits. Don't be part of a political tribe. I think that most people, though, they simply can't extricate themselves for their need of belongingness. I am a liberal, therefore I have to agree wholesale with every single platform issue that Joe Biden says or that uh, the other guy says. No, you have a brain, you have neuronal circuitry. Why don't you pick and choose the issues and then enunciate why you support them or don't support them? And I think one of the reasons why, you know, my platform grew the way that it, it it has is precisely because I come across as someone who is truthful. I defend my positions in the best way that I can. And I'd like to think that I'm not in the least bit tribal. You know, just as since we're still talking about we were talking about the pandemic, um, I noticed that you uh, uh, were giving Dr. Fauci a warm send off. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, uh, I recently posted a satirical piece, although I don't break character, so I do make it seem as though I'm being genuine, where I said th there really is no point for me or any other academic to continue as an academic, because since Dr. Fauci not only is the embodiment of science, he is science. Since he's retiring, there is really no trajectory by which I can go on in my academic career because he was the light that was illuminating my scientific trajectory. Of course, I was being facetious because, you know, whatever you may think of some of his policies and so on, to exhibit that level of delusions of grandeur and megalomania and narcissism struck me as rather off-putting. And so I think this is what you're referring to in terms of that clip. I want to bring together a few of our topics. And this, you know, this is one of the things I really enjoyed about the parasitic mind. There's this theme of dehumanization. For example, right, in the, during the pandemic, it became the pandemic of the unvaccinated. How how irrespective of how insane that actual position was from a biological perspective, somehow it became that, you know, in the, again, not to harp on Sam specifically, because this is a lot of people, these, the Trump supporters are some kind of weird tribe that, that is completely captivated and, and, and unable to think for themselves and probably, you know, really nasty people. And of course, you know, let you know what you mentioned earlier. Of course, you know, the Holocaust was is the kind of the quintessential example, and we see that with you know very different re religious and spiritual groups in China. The same kind of dehumanization. It's always, it's, it's a common trait of humanity in in a weird way to do this, and this is sort of also harnessed by demagogues. Yeah, I, I mean that's perfectly stated, and that's precisely why I found Sam's position so galling. In his most recent trigonometry chat, to, to which you've referred to on several occasions so far, he gave the example of, of all Trump voters, I, I don't know how much, it was. Let, let's call them 80 million, I'm not exactly sure what the number was, 79,999,999 are complete degenerates who sleep with their sisters. But he did give a pass to a single individual, if you remember the chat, and that's his friend Peter Thiel. So Sam Harris was sufficiently generous as to grant one pass to a single Trump voter. You know, I know, I'm speaking now, Sam, I know Peter Thiel and I know that he's smart. So I'm sure he may have some valid reasons why he did the unthinkable in supporting Trump. But for those other 79 million plus Cretans who sleep with their sisters, there's absolutely no possible rational way by which they could have voted for such a monster. Now, in 2016, Jan, before Trump was elected, I had appeared on Sam's show and I had explained to him using principles from psychology of decision making how perfectly rational human beings could have voted for Trump. And I'll give one example here, if I may. So there is a decision rule called the lexicographic rule, which basically works as follows. Let's suppose I'm choosing between cars. A lexicographic rule would be, I only look at my most important attribute. Let's say for me, it's price. And I choose the car which scores better 
on that attribute. What does that mean? I didn't look at the other 18, 20 attributes that define a car. I only looked at my most important attribute. Let's say I'm choosing between toothpastes. I only look at whichever one is on sale. That's the one I buy. So now let's apply the lexicographic rule to Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Let's suppose I am a lexicographic rule user and I only care about immigration. That is my one issue you know, thing that I vote on. Well, rightly or wrongly, if I think that Trump scores better on immigration policy than Hillary Clinton, then it would be perfectly rational for me to choose Donald Trump, even though the 50 other attributes Hillary Clinton might have scored better on, right? I could give you 50 other decision rules that can explain why perfectly rational people could have voted for Trump. But apparently my lecture that I offered Sam for free on his show, apparently he didn't learn from it and continued for the nine next five years dehumanizing 79 million people. So that's why I ultimately decided to speak out against his positions, not because I hold any animus against him, but precisely for what you said, which is the mechanism that he is using to denigrate and reject half of America is exactly what the Holocaust is. I read a book recently uh, and interviewed a man named Matthias Desmond. I think I was told that you're not familiar with his body of I'm work. Not. His book is The Psychology of Totalitarianism. I'm actually going to be having him in person here at the studio tomorrow uh, to, di to discuss further. Um, the, I won't go into the details of it, but this the, the dehumanization is a critical element of enacting totalitarian policy in society. And this is deeply disturbing and, to me. And, well, and you know, look, coalitional thinking, so to, to link it to my you know, evolutionary uh, work, coalitional thinking, which is us versus them, is an indelible part of the human brain's architecture, right? So, you know, if, uh, I, I can't remember the reference for the study, I had I had heard of it first uh, as a doctoral student in an advanced social psychology course. So forgive me if I don't give the proper reference, but there was a study that I remember our professor at the time had talked about, and it, it's a brilliant study. So you bring in people into the lab and you put a stick on them, let's say a blue sticker or a red sticker for whatever. And then you say, oh, uh, sorry, I'll come back into the room in a few minutes and then we'll do part two. And of course, ostensibly, what you're trying to do is see how people now will interact with one another in the waiting room as they're waiting. And what happens, as you might expect, the blue dot people start talking to each other and the red dot people start talking to each other. So at that point, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Muslim. It doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight. It doesn't matter whether you're tall or short or black or white. Somehow, through the complete introduction of an ir irrelevant cue, nonsensical cue of belongingness, blue dot, red dot, I can get people to band accordingly. What's brilliant about such a study is it exactly shows how we create these delineations. So when a totalitarian thug comes in, he has to place those lines on hypersteroid. Look at those bad guys over there, right? Now, what that does, by the way, if I can again, be formal in terms of the, the, the psychological background, there is a fundamental principle in, in, uh, in psychology called theory of mind. Theory of mind 
is is necessary for human sociality. It's when I can put myself in your mind, Jan, Jan, to know what you're thinking. You know, autistic children, by the way, one of the ways that you diagnose them early as being autistic is precisely because they don't have uh, the capacity for theory of mind. They, they don't have that acuity. They don't have that, that ability. And so when Sam Harris and his friends are completely having no theory of mind when it comes to putting themselves in the position of a likely rational Trump voter, they're being, metaphorically speaking, grotesquely autistic, right? Because they're saying there is no means by which I could explain how those degenerates, right, could ever do such a thing. And so combine our coalitional thinking, combine our inability to have theory of mind for the other, and you get the fertile ground for totalitarianism. Something that's been on my mind since I was reading The Parasitic Mind, and actually this is something that has been popping into my mind kind of repeatedly over the past months, but it, it, it definitely came out when I was reading, is this idea that um, it's almost like in, in, in this, again, for lack of a better term, woke ideology. It feels to me like the methodology is something like you, you take the thing that's the exception you pretend it's the rule and then apply it to everyone. And I I don't know if I've quite seen this, you know, described this way in the past, but does this this ring true to you? And I see this kind of this thing replicated, not just, not just there, um, not, not just specifically in woke ideology, but in all sorts of realms, perhaps in public health um, uh, as a result. And I'm wondering whether it's, it's because of an infusion of this ideology into society more broadly. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Well, I, I think uh, there are several things at play here in what you're saying. One is even ir- irrespective of you know the woke parasitic I- uh, idea pathogens, uh, people have certain cognitive traps that they succumb to that hold true even outside the context of woke ideology. So, for example, to your point about you know using one exemplar as the as the evidence rather right. Uh, for example, when I when I lecture on evolutionary psychology and I say that human beings are a sexually dimorphic species, which is a fancy term for saying that there are sex-specific differences, say, in physical size. Men are taller and heavier than women. That is a undeniable scientific fact. So someone will raise their hand and say, but Dr. Saad, my aunt Julie is taller than my uncle Bob. Oh, shit. Darwinian theory is dead. Back to the drawing board we go. So they use an exemplar, a singular example, to falsify a statement that holds true at the population level, right? Men are taller than women, even though the women who play in the WNBA are taller than most men. That does One doesn't invalidate the other. So those type of cognitive breakdowns occur you know, independently of woke ideology, if you'd like, they're, they're blind spots in the in the, the architecture of, of the human mind. And that's what, in a sense, made Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky the incredible psychologists that they that they are, because they and, and, and Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for that work. Uh, Tversky had already passed away, so you can't win it posthumously. But they demonstrated that many of the principles of so-called rational decision-making, we actually violate. We're not nearly as cognitively rational as classical economists think we are. Now, 
uh, I think what you were also alluding to is something that I talk in chapter six of the parasitic mind, which it's a collective malady, which I call ostrich parasitic syndrome. This is where you deny reality in ways that are truly hallucinatory, right? It's it's the, the metaphor, of course, is the ostrich that puts buries its head in the sand to ignore reality, even though the ostrich doesn't actually do that. That metaphor has become now apt. We understand what it means. And the, I give many examples in that chapter of that malady, uh, for short, OPS, ostrich parasitic syndrome. OPS, so for example, when it comes to Islamic terrorism, I listed in the book, not satirically, I wasn't being facetious or playful. I listed a, a, a list of, quote, causes that super smart progressive professors have offered for why Islamic terrorism exists. It certainly had nothing to do with Islamic doctrines, even though in the 37,000 plus terror attacks since 9-11 alone, the terrorists will say that we are doing it for the particular doctrine in our faith and they will quote it from the Quran or the Hadith. No, no, no. It's due to, let me give you some examples. And again, I am not being facetious here. It's due to beard bullying. It's due to lack of art exposure. You know, if only the if only Ahmad Muhammad Hussein had been exposed to more Chagall and Modigliani, then he wouldn't have gone to join ISIS. It's due to climate change. As Bill Nye, the science guy, explained on air, I have the quote in the parasitic mind, he said it's perfectly reasonable to think that climate change was the downstream cause of why the terrorists did the Bataclan attack. The one, if, for those of you who don't remember, it's when they walked into a, in Paris, into a uh, concert hall and mowed down everybody. It's actually due to carbon emissions and solar panels. When you could be so parasitized by lunacy, uh, there is room to not be optimistic about the state of the world, although I remain optimistic. You know, as you're speaking, I'm remembering this. There's this clip that was circulating around the internet, and it was basically titled something like, The Moment Afghan We Lost Afghanistan, or something like this. I don't know if you remember. And the clip is, um, you know, a very sort of, you know, educated, I, it seems like a kind of State Department type person. Um, explaining very, very sincerely to a group of Afghan women uh, what the Duchamp urinal is. It, it's up on a screen and, and she's kind of explaining that this is art. And these people, you know, that are watching are thinking, looking at themselves going, what the hell is this? I mean, that's what you see in their eyes, right? Which is frankly what I think too, actually. <laughs> So uh, uh, having the, uh, the Afghan women stare at a, a urinal and being perplexed that it's art is really them demonstrating, unbeknownst to them, that they disdain postmodernism. Postmodernism, as I explained in The Parasitic Mind, uh, of all idea pathogens, so examples of idea pathogens would be postmodernism, social constructivism. Uh, biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human phenomena. Uh, 
cultural relativism. Who are we to judge other cultures if they want to do it this way? Uh, militant feminism. All of these and many others that I describe in the book are forms of idea pathogens. And I argue that the most insidious, the worst of all idea pathogens is postmodernism because it fundamentally attacks the epistemology of truth. So it's not simply that you're sp spreading specific falsehoods, right? When Donald Trump says, you know, uh, my penis is the biggest penis in the history of the world. I'm, 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 I'm being jocular or, you know, th there's never been a president that's been more loved and revered than I am. He may be promulgating a falsehood, but that's a singular falsehood. Postmodernism rejects the possibility of seeking truth. So it's the ultimate epistemological falsehood because it basically says that we are always constrained by our subjectivity, by our personal biases. So to speak of a truth with a capital T, could there could not be such a thing because there is no such truth. And I famously give the example in in my book, and I'll, I'll link it back in a second to the Afghani ladies uh, uh, with the ur urinals. Uh, I give the example in the in the book where uh, uh, this happened in 2002. One of my uh, doctoral students had just defended his dissertation, and we were going out to dinner to celebrate, it was my doctoral student, myself, my wife, and he was bringing a date along. And so he calls me before we head out to a restaurant. He goes, oh, I just wanted to tell you that uh, the lady that I'm bringing um, tonight for dinner uh, is a graduate student in postmodernism, uh, uh, women's studies, and cultural anthropology. And I answered, ah, okay, so the holy trinity of bullshit. Uh, and so the reason why he was saying this is because he was kind of warning me that, you know, let, let's be on our best behavior. Don't embarrass possible. me, God. Don't embarrass don't, me, don't right? Embarrass me, God. Exactly. Let's just celebrate my great PhD achievement. I said, oh, oh, I got you. No problem. I'm going to be, mum's the word, I'm on my best behavior. Of course, that was an utter lie because about halfway through the, the evening, very politely, but inquisitively, I turned to the lady in question. I said, oh, I hear you're a postmodernist. She goes, yes. I said, there are no universal truths, correct? She goes, yes. I said, well, you know, I think that there are some universal truths. Could I maybe propose some and then you could tell me how I'm going wrong about it? She said, yes, go for it. I said, is it not true? Now this is 2002, Jan, remember. So I'm predating the thing that men can be pregnant that we now have with transgender activism, right? So truly prophetic, 2002. I say, is it not true that within homo sapiens, humans, it is only women that bear children? Is that not a universal fact? So she looks at me, scoffs at my simpleton mind, at my inherent sexism and says, absolutely not true. I said, how is it not true? She said, well, because there is a Japanese tribe off some Japanese island whereby within the folkloric mythological realm, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting to the biological realm, you know, that's how you keep us barefoot and pregnant. So after I recovered from the mini stroke that I experienced at facing such stupidity, I said, okay, let's, let me not give an example that is so corrosive and contentious as only women bear children. How about we use a cosmological example? Is it not true that within the Earth's vantage point that sailors have since time immemorial relied on the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and there she used something an offshoot of the, of postmodernism called deconstructionism, Jacques Derrida, of which is the 
the, the, the originator of that. Language creates reality. So she said, what do you mean by East and West? Those are arbitrary labels. And what do you mean by the sun? That which you call the sun, I might call dancing hyena, literally her words. I said, well, fine. The dancing hyena rises in the East and sets in the West. She said, well, I don't play those you know, label games. So when I couldn't create a Venn diagram, an intersection where her and I could meet and agree that only women bear children and, and there is such a thing as the sun and it rises in the east and sets in the west. If we can't agree on that, then you could only conclude that postmodernism, as I explained in the parasitic mind, is literally a form of intellectual terrorism. Now, let me come back to the Afghani women. In the book, I explain that postmodernism has found its way in every possible discipline that you could think of, including in art, where even much more embarrassingly than arguing that a urinal is art, how about this? I'm not being satirical or facetious here. How about invisible art? So there was a, a curated art, you know, art exhibit in a real museum where the art was invisible because you know you could put your own meaning into what you're seeing to which i had written in the book in the first draft well my next book i already found the topic i'll have a front cover a back cover it will be empty and then i'll leave it to the reader to to decide what's in it and then my editor wrote and then i included in the final thing well, that book has already been written. Michael Knowles has already had done a, had written a book called Reasons Why You Should Vote for Democrats or something like that. And it was, of course, an empty book. And so all of this is to show that when people can genuinely go to an art exhibit and stand in wonder at looking at nothing, those are parasitized minds. No, Gad, um, I think we're kind of coming up to the end of our, our program here. I could talk to you for hours and hours. So I think we're going to have to invite you back in the not too distant future to speak further because I'm just absolutely fascinated by the book, The Parasitic Mind, and by, by your thinking and, and frankly, by your intellectual honesty. You know, um, so there's, there's two things I want to cover as we kind of finish up. One is, you know, you've so have you faced any personal repercussions? There's something called cancellation out there. Right. Uh, I, I certainly have. I can give you a, a range of uh, downstream effects. In 2017, uh, the number of death threats I was receiving were so outlandish, both in terms of what was going to be done to me and the number that I was receiving, that I had to, when I would go to the university, I had to be uh, accosted by security. They would uh, lock the classroom where I was lecturing so that students could leave. But if they wanted to come back in, the door had to be unlocked. And then there'd be a security guy waiting for me when I finished class, who would then come with me as I would walk out to uh, for my wife to pick me up. Uh, I had to go with a representative of my university to the Montreal police, not the campus police, the Montreal police, and file a report. Uh, and that caused me actually, and I'm, I'm, I'm a very you know, calm guy. I can handle everything that comes my way. I don't care. I, I truly am a honey badger. But it started. I started experiencing symptoms of you know, anxiety attacks and panic attacks because I literally didn't know when they were going to come at me and whether the next minute would be my last minute, the Salman Rushdie stuff. Luckily, knock on wood, 
nothing's ever happened and may it continue forevermore. But so that would be, if you'd like, the most egregious downstream effect. So to those people who would say things like, oh, but professor, it's not hard for you to be courageous. You know, you have tenure. Yeah, well, let me send the death threats to you and then you could tell me how much tenure protects you. So that's number one. Number two, of course, I've had to bear a professional cost. Number one, I know that many universities that wanted to extend me offers uh, because of my academic dossier, who then were stopped because when pe when other faculty members would hear that Gatsad might be hired here, they would start a mutiny and then I would lose that opportunity. Even within my own university, I held a chaired professorship, the most prestigious professorship that we could have in the university that's given by the university. It's a university-wide chair. I held one for 10 years and you know, it would be a cinch for me to hold it for many more years because my dossier has only increased since then. But now I've been den denied four years in a row and I can guarantee you that I will never come close to holding such a chair again. So for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of ways, I've had many, many costs to bear. Many people won't invite me to the cool kids party, but that's okay. The reality though is that the benefits outweigh the costs on two fronts. Number one, uh, I have a very exacting code of personal conduct, meaning that when I go to bed at night and I lay my head on my pillow, I need to feel that I never walked away from telling the truth. Because if I equivocated, that means I'm a charlatan and then that will cause me to have insomnia. So in order for me to feel comfortable with my personhood, I have to speak as I am. I am authentic to a fault. But secondly, my truth telling has allowed me to probably be more influential than all of those professors combined over 30 lifetimes. So even if I were looking at extrinsic reasons for why one should be a truth seeker, then it ultimately pays. The world is shaped not by equivocating fence sitters, it is shaped by people who take bold and courageous decisions. I'm not trying to toot my horns because there are endless people who are more courageous than me. The people who speak truth while they are sitting in the Middle East, those are heroes, right? Raif Badawi, who, who languished for 10 years in prison in Saudi Arabia, I, I, am friend, I am personal friends of their family, his children and his wife, that's a hero. Salman Rushdie, who was willing to put his life on the line, that's a hero, both of whom deserve Nobel Prizes. So I tell people, stop worrying about being canceled at your job, stop worrying about being unfriended by Facebook, truth is more important than you being canceled. You know, actually, let, let's finish with this. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot and I've spoken with a number of people about. There's this uh, moral courage that you're describing and that's a very real thing. For the rest of us, people have told me I'm courageous with what I do. I looked at myself and I thought, I don't know if that's exactly the right word because there's something else that's not quite courage. It's different. It's something where you couldn't live with yourself uh, if you didn't you know, do the thing or, or be as honest as you could. Or, and I get the sense you have this too, but I don't think that's the same thing as courage. What do you think? I completely agree. It's 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 if you want, it's existential authenticity. And actually, in my next book, uh, where I talk about the good life and about you know how to seek happiness, and now you might say, well, there's already been ten thousand books written on it. Well, they they haven't written it from the perspective of my personal anecdote, backed up by the science that I use. So I'd like to think that there are some 
you know, many unique things that I'd say in the book. But in that book, I talk about one of the ways by which you can truly achieve existential happiness is to be pathological authentic. Now, authenticity it can be broken down in two parts. There's authenticity in the sense of, you know, you're a real person when you meet me. You know, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I don't equivocate. I'm authentic in that way. But there's also an existential authenticity in in the following sense. You know, I've I always wanted to be a dancer, but I became an accountant because my father and grandfather were accountants. And therefore, I pursued their dream. But then suddenly I woke up at 60 and I said, you know what? I truly regret that I never instantiated the true self that I wanted to be. And so... Authenticity is really both something at the micro level in our unique interactions daily. Are you authentic or not? But it also guides our existential happiness, because if you wake up at the end of your life and you look back at your life with little regret, it's probably because you were authentic to a fault. You really lived by that internal compass that has driven your life. Hence the pillow story that I told you about. When I lay on the pillow, I need to feel that I was true to truth. I never equivocated. I was never a coward. And so you're spot on, Jan. Authenticity is the way to happiness and liberation. Well, Dr. Gadsad, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and we'll have you back again soon. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining Dr. Gadsad and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. 